Welcome to The Gathering Place with Blessed Is She. I'm Jenna Gizar. And I'm Beth Davis. Pull up a chair and grab a drink. Or you could just keep doing what you're doing. Pull up a chair in your heart. (laughs) Come chat with us about Jesus, prayer, community, and life. So let's get started. Hi, Jenna. Hello. So great to see you. Good morning. We got Laura Finucci here. Laura, hi. Laura Kelly Finucci live in action. LKF. Hi, ladies. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. It's so fun to be here with you this morning. Ditto. Yeah. Would you mind introducing yourself? Absolutely. So I am Laura Kelly Finucci. I am a mom of four boys with one more on the way. So we will have a house of five boys. Come Lord Jesus. We have two daughters in heaven, Maggie and Abby, our twins, who (laughs) I will just beg their intercession in advance for that postpartum season. We just need all the prayers we can get. So we have a delightfully full home. And I also am a writer. I also work on a theological project on vocation and calling that I direct. So I've worked in the theological area of vocation for going on 11 years now, which is crazy. I wish I had all the answers. I wish we could just do like a phone-in show and people could send me all their vocational questions and I would answer them. Turns out it doesn't work like that, but it is amazing work and I have learned so much about vocation. I'm a blogger and I've written books and I just am a person who believes in multiple callings. So all of those things come together, family and work and writing and it's beautiful chaos. Have you read that book by Jen Fulweiler? Yes, One Beautiful Dream. I like that she talked about your vocations all can be intertwined like that. Like all of your callings can come from each other. I totally agree. I think people think it's really segmented or it's like you can only be called to one thing. You know, you can only be called to marriage or family life or you can be called to professional work. No, I think God is so creative. And I think rarely does someone have just one vocation. I mean, even a priest is still called to his family of origin, is called to his friends, is called to volunteer work that he does in the community. And I think those can be really deep callings. And I always think the image of just being centered in our callings like people talk about balance all the time and I don't think balance is helpful but like being centered in Christ if they're all centered in Christ then like God helps you balance or center however you want to say it keep all of those grounded in the right place but I would say probably before I started all this work on vocation I mean I'm a cradle Catholic so I would have thought vocations were to the priesthood or religious life and I didn't have that so I got married, and we do talk about marriage as a vocation in the church, but I don't think I ever would have called like my professional work or my writing a calling or even motherhood because I would have thought, well, you don't have like a sacrament around that, right? No, I think I see now how all of that is wrapped up in God's call in my life and like how I respond with my gifts and what I have and what God gives me. And it really is transformative, I think, once you start realizing that all these different parts of your life can be ways that God calls you. Yeah. Laura, do you have like a life verse? My favorite word of all time is behold. I'm obsessed with it. But I think that line from Isaiah about behold, I'm doing something new. I make a way in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I think that is just how God shows up, not just in my life, but in 
everyone's life that I know is like, I am making a way where there is no way. And where you see desert and desolation, I have another plan. And that is never the end. And God is always doing something new. The times in my life when I struggle, I just think now is forever. I'm never going to get out of this darkness or this hard place. But trusting that God is doing something new. And my job is to behold that, like that holy seeing of don't just look at your life or the world or whatever situation with your own eyes. Try to look at it with God's eyes, with that holy seeing of behold. And then you start to see, oh, God could do something new in this way beyond what I could think about. So Laura, this is one of the things I absolutely love about you and am so inspired by your spirituality in is that you're able to bring the faith to have like this holy lens around your everyday life. And you mentioned going through hard seasons and there are certainly like more significant seasons where you're inviting God in and seeing him at work. But even in like the everyday day to day, you seem to have found a formula for making ordinary things sacred. And Mm. I wonder, does it go back to that holy scene, to your love of the word behold? Do you know, I think I fell in love with behold after I started seeing the world that way. I really think it was a really strange fruit out of like a transition in my life that was really hard for me. So I went to graduate school for theology for three years, was like just immersed in scripture and theology and just, I still can't believe right now what a gift that was to have spent that time. And when I came out of that time, I was pregnant with our first child. So I started doing some part-time work in theology after I graduated, but my life was just overwhelmed by this transition to new motherhood, which is so ordinary, so hard, so bodily, like your body, this baby's like, you just don't sleep. Everything feels so ordinary. So I felt like I had this expansive time of growth and just incredible learning in my faith. And then all of a sudden I was like, and now I'm at home with a baby and I do this work on the side, but how am I supposed to find you in this place, God? Like this transition is just bewildering to me. I am a very stubborn person and I was so determined that I would find God in this place and that God could show up in this very ordinary and sometimes really hard day-to-day life as a new mom, that I was just stubbornly determined to find it. And so I think I had my eyes open because I was so desperate and so longing to find God here at home in the ordinary as I had in this extraordinary gift of studying theology. And so I think little by little, I started to see, yeah, like I'm learning something about baptism from washing this baby every day that in some ways like my baptism class couldn't teach me the fullness of because we were studying books and we were in church. And yet like I see this amazing abundance of what baptism is and the gift of water and what it is to be washed clean. And so there were like little things like that that I started to see, oh my goodness, God shows up in all these facets of life, we don't get to just compartmentalize and say, God's at church, God's in scripture, God is in holy things, God is incarnate, which means that God is just wrapped up in all of it for us. So honestly, it was how hard new motherhood was for me that I think let me find this spirituality of really seeing the holy in the everyday. 
everything you said, I think we would all agree with, right? Yes. And even when I approach the scriptures, in particular, I'm thinking about like the nativity. And I think this couldn't have been their ideal birth plan. And so there's a distant appreciation of that in their life, that it was so humble, so ordinary, but somehow we've still like sanitized it. It's this two-dimensional, holy out there thing. And we don't know how to relate that to our own experience, even though they're very similar experiences. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, Beth, you have such a gift for imaginative prayer. And that has really touched my life too, to think, you know, we're not called to keep scripture at a distance, like you said, and sanitize it or think, well, I don't really have the right to kind of engage that with my own life. I'm not a scripture scholar. I don't know enough. The whole story of scripture is God madly in love with humans and wanting to be involved in the most intimate parts of our life, like that there's nothing that God wants us to hide from him, right? There's nothing we can hide from God. But I think when you start to let yourself even see scripture as the story of mostly imperfect humans, with some exceptions, right? Notable exceptions. (laughs) Mostly a lot of really flawed, sinful people who find their way to God and love God and then stray and get really lost and do some terrible things, like really terrible things, but then find their way back to God's love. And I think when you start to realize like, yes, this is all the word of God, which is also amazingly, miraculously, the story of a lot of sinful humans. Like God is speaking a good word to all of that. We're really called to let those stories and all those people become intimately involved in our own life and not to just say like, well, Mary, sinless. I mean, what do you have to say to me as a woman, as a wife, as a mother? Like, you know, I'm just thinking of all those Renaissance paintings and you look perfect and I'm like, haven't showered in four days and every part of my body hurts, you know? Remembering that God is Emmanuel with us, incarnation, And that wasn't like a one-time thing that happened when Jesus was born. It's how God is in the world. It doesn't have to do with motherhood or the particulars of my life. It has to do with the particulars of every human life, which is what blows my mind, right? That God is involved this deeply in every single human life, no matter the circumstances. And I think once we start to like catch a glimpse of that, and I think it's just a glimpse where we start, where we realize oh, that was a funny little moment of grace. Like, I didn't expect that in my day. And I think our souls are so hungry for that that once you start looking for it, you notice it more and more. That's kind of where I am now with my faith. I feel like I can't help but just start to see it in ways that I never saw before and share that because I think the more that we share of that, the deeper our own faith grows and the stronger our communities grow. Like telling those stories of where we encounter God is what the church has always been about. So good. (laughs) Yeah, that's so good. Is Franco like you? Not at all. So Franco is my husband. The thing we most have in common, besides like a marriage and many children, is that we have the same birthday, same day, month, year. I thought he was lying when we were dating in college. I thought... He must have like forged an ID even when he produced a driver's license, which is really funny because he also does not drink at all, never has. So I don't know why my first thought when he was like, well, that's my birthday too. I was like, you lie. And I'm sure this is a fake. 
But other than that, I laugh that we are like two halves of the same brain. The way he thinks is like cobwebs on my side of the brain. And ditto for him. Like, he's an engineer. He understands the way the world works in terms of mechanics and physics and like logic. I am not logical at all. No spatial reasoning. We really are so opposite in some ways. I think we both have a very similar sense of humor. Like we have a very sarcastic, bordering on dark sense of humor, which is my favorite. And I think that is kind of what helps us massage through the differences. He has a rock solid faith, right? Like cradle Catholic and just unmovable. That man is so loyal. It's not going to be this angsty relationship with God. And I am really kind of intense and emotional and like love to think really deeply about stuff. So I do have a lot of compassion for the fact that most days I will come to him with this like look in my eyes, like I need to tell you this thing I'm thinking about. And he just very kindly takes it in and is like, yeah, yeah, I've never thought about that before. I'm not even really sure what that means. So I just think, what a gift that God gave me this real rock of a husband. But thank God he is not like me because the house would explode and no one would like ever get stuff done. I get up in the morning and I go downstairs because I'm a morning person and I'll light my candle. I pull out my Blessed Is She Bible. This is like my favorite moment of the day, right? I just get to sit with scripture. He will come downstairs like 20 minutes later getting ready for work and I will turn to him with the big eye look and I will be like, think about this. I want you to think about this on like a symbolic level, also theological, also. And he's just like, I just got up. And she's talking to me about the symbolism of like where this healing narrative is taking place. Like what's she doing? And he's really gracious and he just hears it out. <laughs> it's so nerdy and just God bless him. Okay, Laura, I am so curious. Tell me how you met the Lord. You were cradle Catholic. Did like, anything like happen to kind of flip anything for you? Has it always just been kind of steady in your life? Probably what actually transformed my faith at a really young age was my brother died from cancer when I was 10. And that's like a very tender age because you're not yet a teenager. You're not like a young adult who can really grapple with what that means. You know, I was just kind of waking up to the world as you are at 10. I think that I got a sense really early on of God deeply present to us in grief and loss. And I think I internalized that life is really hard and terrible things happen to really good people. So I was always a kid that had a lot of big questions and wanted to ask really big questions and kind of wrestle with that. So I kind of kept going through Catholic high school and just, I mean, ours was one of those families where you just didn't question faith. Like this is just who we are. It's in the water, right? So probably wasn't until I went to college that I really had my eyes open, even though I went to a Catholic university, I really kind of started to come of age with it and explore my faith and come to embrace it. And it was sort of through the door of Catholic social teaching and getting involved with campus ministry and like the Center for Social Concerns on campus that I thought, I find this such a compelling truth that there are people who are so deep in their faith that they would go and like serve the poor, that they would give up their lives to help other people that the rest of the world just wants to ignore. And I just found that so attractive and so compelling. It just sort of started to ruin me. And I had gotten this degree in liberal arts. I don't know. I was a French and art history major. I thought I was just going to be a professor. And that's what everybody was telling me to do. 
And then by the end of my time there, I was like sneaking in these theology classes because I just thought, this is amazing. And all I want to do is go back to the beginning and study theology. So what am I doing? I kind of tried to pick up on this sense of service and social teaching that was really calling to me. And I decided to go spend a year of volunteering because I just wasn't sure yet what to do with my life, but I knew I shouldn't just keep going to school. So I decided to use my French degree. And I went to France for a year and I served with the Sisters of the Assumption. And so I worked in a large community with adults with developmental disabilities and in a homeless shelter with refugees from North Africa. And that year just, as they say, like ruined me for Christ. That just transformed everything I knew, you know, from a kid who in a lot of ways who was like pretty sheltered. And yes, I had gone through this hard experience, but like had a really strong family life and got to go to great school and these kinds of things. And then just saw the world in these whole new ways and found Christ in adults with disabilities that nobody else in the neighborhood wanted to acknowledge and found Christ in these refugees who were just coming to seek this better life and were just in desperate situations. And like, how was I called to just I couldn't help them. I just could sit with them and try to be some small measure of Christ to them. And I think that was when I really woke up. It was so clear in my mind coming back from that, that there was not another way for me to spend my life except for God. That's what led me to study theology. And that's what led me into writing. And so in some ways, it was like that year of really humbling, hard, dirty work. I found so much of God there that I thought, well, this is it. This is what I've been searching for all along. And I think I want to spend the rest of my life trying to figure this out. Beautiful. I'm just always so fascinated to hear about how people fell in love with Christ and the church, because it can happen any way you like. The Lord is so personal. He tailor makes our experience of him to appeal to our deepest hearts. For someone else, it's encountering Christ in the poor. For someone else, it's reading scripture and it lights up. It can just be any way you like. The Lord is pursuing our souls in every possible moment using any avenue he can. There never is just one way, you know, and God is so creative, always doing something new. Laura, when you said that thing about being 10 years old and losing your brother and how 10-year-olds are just waking up to the world, those are the words you used, I got a little teary. Because I think of Leah, actually, who's upstairs, 10 years old, waking up to the world. And I have such compassion on her in the way the Lord is, in that split second of thinking of you, Laura, at 10, and Leah at 10. I also thought of myself at 10 and felt like the immense compassion of God on me at 10 years old. And to go through such a significant thing to have the freedom to ask questions, Mm. it sounds like framed your whole life. It made you a sponge. Hard things were accessible to you because you'd lived through them at a formative age. Wow, that's beautiful. I don't think I've ever thought about it in that way. Like our oldest is 10 and a half, and I look at him with such compassion and I think, this is how old I was when the whole world changed. And how much that did deeply transform who I was. How can you even make sense of that? I mean, we struggle to make sense of death and grief and loss as adults. Like, I can't make sense of it. But 
to know that the world can be that hard and that sad and yet there's still goodness in it and there's joy and there's love. I think it did kind of shepherd me into this place of being able to hold all of that, you know, to say there's this deep loss in my life. Like I still miss my brother. I'm still so sad he's not here. And it's surprising now. There will be times when that rushes back and I think, that was so long ago. Like, what am I doing upset about it? Because that's not how grief and love work. They don't have a time frame, you know? And yet I think like that's part of the mystery of faith is to hold all that, you know, to let us say like the things that feel unknowable here and now are part of God's ways in the world that we don't yet understand. So to try to seek out like, why did that happen? How could you have done that, God? Like, I need answers. Those categories aren't the way that God works, you know, as much as we want them to, because that's sort of the upper limit of our brain. But God is just working in much bigger ways. Like, thank God they are mysteries of faith. And we say that at every Eucharist. It's not like the exact answers of faith, the wisdom of that, and the humility of that to just humble ourselves before God to say, the best of our human hearts and minds are devoted to you and trying to figure this out. And at the end of the day, it's mystery. I think the best things are mysteries. Like love is a mystery. Why does this like engineer with the other side of his brain like still put up with my crazy questions every morning after all these years? Because like we are deeply in love and we see the beauty in like gifts that we do not share. But I can't give you an answer for like, even who he is or why I love him so dearly or like the mystery that each of our kids are. We're just beyond our own limits to comprehend. And I think once you accept that, it's so freeing to just say, you are a mystery and thank God for that. Laura, I love how even when you talk about hard things, you're laughing or you're smiling. And I know, I know you mentioned you tend toward like dark humor, but I think it's more than that. It's not a dark desperation, like masked in humor. There's a real lightness to all of the hard things for you. One of my favorite speakers talks about grieving with hope and how the Lord taught her how to grieve with hope. Because when we grieve without hope, that's a very different experience. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's just desolation. So much of our struggles around talking about things like death and grief as a culture are because we don't have that hope. This feels like the end of everything when you lose someone you love. Okay. So my husband and I had, you know, these twin daughters who were born prematurely and lived only a couple days. That is a defining loss and tragedy of my life. Like I will never be able to see that without seeing the deep sorrow in that and a grief that will never be easily gotten through or overcome, right? But at the same time, I also think the gift of faith says what looks like the end is never the end. And death is part of life, but in the sense that like God wants to actually destroy death at the end. I mean, Revelation tells us that God will destroy death and grief and there will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning. So when people talk about it as a natural part of life, I'm always sort of like, Except for this one thing where that was not in the plan and God wants fullness of life for all of us. When you try to see with eyes of hope and you try to keep that faith as central, you realize it's not the end. It's a huge loss here in my earthly life. 
But I believe they are living with God in this mysterious way still. And my hope is to be with them again one day in heaven. And so that becomes my goal to live a life of love and service to others that can, I pray, get me there. It is a totally different way to to look about it. And so I think, yeah, when you can keep that joy and hope before your eyes, it doesn't totally suck all of the life and love and laughter out of even your everyday because you can see what I'm going through now. Life is bigger than this and God's plan is bigger than this. That's my favorite line from St. Teresa of Calcutta about let nothing so fill you with sorrow that you forget the joy of Christ risen. That's the Paschal mystery in our lives to say the whole shape of our life is always going to be dying and rising, like in the small things and in the huge things. Like you're dying to a life you wanted and a life you thought you were going to have and you thought God was leading you to. And then that dream is gone. And how is God going to invite you to rise again and see something totally different out of that? But I think the Paschal mystery is actually more ordinary than we think too. Like I think that's a mistake we make is erring on the side of thinking, well, that was Jesus that one time that he died and rose and trying to figure that all out. Like that's the Paschal mystery, right? Except that Jesus says so clearly, if you're going to follow me, you're going to take your cross. And so he's literally saying like, I'm inviting you into this mystery. And it's not just this big theological concept that you're not going to get the death or divorce or brokenness or job loss or whatever it is in your life that you just think, God, this is the worst. Like, how am I ever going to get through this? God is saying, yes, this is a real death, whether it's the actual loss of a loved one or it's some other kind of death in your life. And the Christian story is it never ends in death. It always moves us into the resurrection. And so it's like, I feel like we're always holding together incarnation and resurrection, which are these big theological words for God's love, right? That God is just intimately involved in our lives and that God always wants to draw us into life out of death. That's the gift of Easter is to give us all this time to sit with that and to say, okay, it's not just trying to understand Jesus at the tomb and then he's not there. And then there's all these miracles and narratives and it's all in the gospels and that's kind of what I'm called to live out in Easter. Yes, but also we aren't called to just keep that two-dimensional or distant from us. We're also called to say, okay, God, where in my life does it look like things are dying and falling apart and how can I trust and hope that you're going to bring life out of that again? Because that's just the pattern of our lives is that dying and rising. Yeah. Thank you so much, Laura. You are seriously a gift. I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for your wisdom and just your love for the Lord too and what you reveal to me. I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for coming on with us. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. You two are such light and joy to so many. And to be part of that is just, it's awesome. So thank you. Thanks, friend. Thanks. Laura, could I ask you to close us in prayer? Yes. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God of goodness, thank you for the gift of this time together, of every opportunity you give us to be in conversation with each other about the ways you work in our lives, no matter how mysterious or hard or hidden they seem at times. 
Thank you for the gift of joy and hope in the face of fear and loss. God, we just give you today all our dreams, all those that you've brought to light in life in such beautiful ways for us and all of those that you ask us to set aside and to bring something new to life out of that death, to make a way in that wilderness and to spring forth some beautiful river from that desert of our dreams. God, we ask you to just continue to bless the work of Blessed Is She, all the women who will hear these words. May you just touch their lives and open their hearts. May they find hope in our words and continue to guide our paths and direct us each day towards your love. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. 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 Thanks, Laura. So good to be with you. Thanks so much, ladies. Talk to you soon. Before you go, I wanted to let you know that our Easter devotional written by Laura Kelly Fanucci is on our website. It's called Risen, 50 Ways to Live Easter. And I'm so excited to do it alongside you this Easter season. It is a gift for this sisterhood from Laura Kelly Fanucci. So please join us. Head over to blessedishi.net slash shop to get your book. And I also wanted to tell you something super exciting we're doing this year in 2020 is an Easter gathering series. So if you are familiar with us, we have done gatherings for different liturgical seasons, and we thought it would be neat to do it a little bit differently this time. So for every single week of the Easter season, On Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, we will be live on Facebook to dive into the Easter season as a sisterhood. So what's so exciting about this is one, it's every single week, so can't wait to see you. Two, it's free. Three, you're going to get to hear a talk and dive into prayer with the Blessed Issues Sisterhood. So please join us. Go get your Risen book, 50 Ways to Live Easter. If you'd like to do that as a devotional every single day for the Easter season, it's simple, it's easy. It's a beautiful way to dive into prayer for the whole Easter season. And then come join us every single Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page, Blessed Is She. We can't wait to see you. Bye. Thanks so much for gathering with us here on the Blessed Is She podcast. Send over all your questions using the Anchor app. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us at blessedishe.net slash community and join us on all your favorite social media platforms. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I love Twitter. Until next time.